You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here and you made it in the rain. There's nothing you can't do. So, there really isn't. So, all right. Uh, now, most if you've been around Calvary for a while, you probably know this. I have three kids. My daughter Mia is 13. My son Xander is 11. My daughter Livy is eight for one more month. And uh, so, my son, this is probably about a year ago or so, we were having a conversation, he and I, about his career choices for the future. And he's, he told me, that he had narrowed it down to two possible things, that he either wanted to be a pastor or a professional YouTuber. And, uh, but he, as of late, he's kind of leaning more towards the pastor side, but not just that he wants to be a pastor, he's decided that he wants to be the pastor of Calvary. Uh, when I retire, well, don't, don't, don't put me into retirement just yet. Uh, I'm sure there are many that would applaud on my last Sunday, but, uh, no, I know, I know. I'm just messing around. I know. I know you love me deeply. (laughs) All right. That's good. That was more meant to be a joke, but all right. Thank you. Now you got all, got me all sentimental. All right. That's good. So thankfully there's such a fog in here. I can't see anything. Uh, (laughs) just see, (laughs) I see like trees walking. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, but his plan is to become a, the pastor of Calvary when I retire. And by the way, should that ever happen, my plan is not to retire. My plan is to preach until I'm dead. In fact, I want to go while preaching. That is my preferred way to go, which by the way is terrible for you, fantastic for me. Because it, it just, it one assures me that I'm not going to get myself into any trouble before I go. And I just love the idea of preaching something and then seeing Jesus and be like, I was just talking about you. And uh, so anyway, I have that kind of thought. But, uh, but this the idea of him becoming the pastor of Calvary is something that he's given some thought to. And he, uh, he's actually been talking to people that he wants to hire. Uh, so he sat his best friend down, uh, whose name is Danny. If you know, pastor Alex, sometimes you see him playing guitar and, uh, you'll see him all over the place. He hosts and he'll actually be teaching next week. So you'll see him if you don't see him. Uh, but anyway, uh, he was talking to, uh, Alex's son, Danny, and he's having this conversation, by the way, in my office. And he's like, listen, Danny, I'm going to be the pastor of Calvary when my dad retires. So why don't you become an assistant pastor at Calvary and then we can work together. And now the rest of the story I have because um, Danny's mom told me the rest of this story where Danny accepted the job (laughs) that was offered to him and told his mom that night at dinner, hey, by the way, I'm going to be an assistant pastor as, a, as my career. And she said, well, Danny, that's great. If that's what you feel called to do, you can go to Bible college and get a theology degree and get prepared. And he's like, mom, that's a waste of time. 
Xander already hired me. Like, I already have the job, so why am I going to go to college? Anyway, so, uh, but this is, <laughs> it is, by the way, parenting is no joke. Uh, and people who say it easy are those who have not done it. And, um, but Xander, I, I've been taking Xander with me to do, I mean, I've taken him with me to do uh, weddings, funerals, hospital calls. And he has this thing, especially when he was like four or five, uh, I would have my Bible and he'd take like his kid's Bible with him. And he would say, dad, you're the senior pastor and I'm the junior pastor. And we would just roll like that. And, uh, and now the, the reality is, is that that's just how we learn. Because most of the big lessons that you've learned in your life didn't really come by way of rules. They came by way of example that we learn by experience. But listen, the smartest people are those who learn from the experience and the example of others because it it is a, a much less painful way to live your life is to learn from the experience of other people. And uh, you don't have to make every mistake yourself. You can let other people be your R&D department. And that's not true just when it comes to others, but it's true when it comes to when we approach the Bible, that we can learn from the, the mistakes of watching those in the Bible and be instructed by them. Now, I tell you this because uh, if you've been with us any time in the last 10 weeks, because that's how long ago it was, we started this study in the book of Hebrews, which is arguably the most theologically dense book in the New Testament. It's written to a group of Jewish Christians who are going through a difficult season. They're asking this question. And the reason I mention this every week is because the book, it's going to be difficult to understand the book if you don't understand the overarching theme of it. The question is, if God loves me, why is life so hard? And the answer to that question is this very eloquent and theologically dense letter that serves as an encouragement for us to do the one thing that matters, the one thing that's going to help when you're going through a difficult season, and that is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And throughout this book, the writer has been telling us, here's why you need to fix your eyes on Jesus, because Jesus is better than anything else that you could put your trust in, put your focus on, or put your hope in. And now, and we, we hear that and we think, yeah, we definitely shouldn't put our hope in the stuff that's like bad and sinful and all that. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is better. And he spends the first seven chapters of the book talking about how Jesus is better than religious stuff, things that would be considered good, religious positions and people in, in, in religious positions. And in chapter eight, he says, this is the main point of the things that we're saying where he talks then about the old covenant, the covenant that God made with the people Israel, and that there is a new covenant that God the Father made with God the Son through the sacrifice of Jesus that we are the beneficiary of. And that that thing that was sacred in Judaism was preparing us for Jesus. In fact, in the last chapter, we we looked at this verse in Hebrews chapter 8. It says, they serve, that is the priest, at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is, the tabernacle, this place where they came to worship, was a replica. It was a picture, a model of essentially what heaven looks like. And so, um, 
this new covenant that we get invited into through Jesus is better than the old one, just like the real tabernacle is better than the copy. Why? Because the old covenant was a conditional one. It was what we call an if-then covenant. That is, God says, if you will do this, then I will do that. So you've got to keep your end of the bargain. And if you do keep your end of the bargain, then I'll keep my end of the bargain. The problem is, is that as people, they didn't keep their end of the bargain. We don't keep our end of the bargain. And, and that's what, what the problem is. The new covenant is so much better. And we talked about this if you were with us last time. The new covenant is so much better because a promise is only as good as the person who's keeping it. And so now the new covenant is a covenant based between God the Father and God the Son, and we are the beneficiaries of it. Now, in chapter 9, he's going to drill down on this idea even deeper. And by the way, as we think this is like graduate level, as we've been kind of drilling down in Hebrews, uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are really kind of the deeper part of Hebrews. Then when we get to chapters 11, 12, and 13, it's just going to be the application of everything that we've learned. And so, but the idea of Judaism being the example to prepare us for what Jesus would bring and what he's going to do something so powerful and he's going to show us in our lives that God has been preparing us for what's next. He's been preparing the people of Israel for what's next. And, and God does the same thing in our lives. He prepares us for what's next by modeling it for us, by bringing people into our lives to model it and showing us the person of Jesus who models it as well. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 9 in verse 1. And here's what we read. It says, Then indeed, even the first sanctuary had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, or the first covenant had divine ordinances, uh, for the tabernacle was prepared. The first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or the holy place, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were a golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. And I'm so glad I'm not the writer of Hebrews because I have the opportunity to speak about it in detail. And so, now, first thing... Uh, that I want to talk about as we delve down into this. When we talk about an example, the first is this, that we have an example for a deeper walk with God. Now, whether you and I recognize it or not, we are being influenced by the people around us. And that's this whole idea that he's, that he's going to bring out, that Jesus is modeling for us what a deeper walk looks like through the tabernacle. And so um, there's this thing I used to do constantly. For, I did this for years. I would get home. By the time I would get home, my wife was usually making dinner. And so I had this thing. I'd go into the pantry. I'd grab a jar of peanut butter um, because 
I'm, I love peanut butter. I'm like on the verge of a 12-step program with peanut butter. Uh, I love peanut butter. And, uh, and so anyway, I would, I would get a jar of peanut butter and I would get a spoon and I would sit, I, I would lean on the counter and I would just have a few scoops of peanut butter while my wife uh, would tell me about her day. Well, what happened is, is that uh, then 13 years ago, we had our daughter Mia and I would lean up against the counter and have uh, some peanut butter. And then when she was just like two years old, um, I would get home and she would go to uh, the drawer and she'd pull out this little Snoopy spoon and then she would uh, s- lean on the counter and then she would get a scoop of peanut butter and she would start eating peanut butter. And then, uh, a, you know, a couple years later, we had Xander. And then I would get home one day and I would grab my uh, jar of um, peanut butter and my spoon, and then Mia would get her spoon, and then one day Xander got his spoon. And I was leaning on the counter eating, and I'm, and I'm looking down the line, and I see Mia leaning on the counter eating some peanut butter, and I see Xander down the line eating some peanut butter. Well, as the story goes on, my daughter Olivia was born. And so a couple years later, I'm, I get home, I grab my jar of peanut butter, I, I'm leaning up against the wall. Are up against the counter, and I'm eating my jar, uh, uh, eating my spoonful of peanut butter, and Livy is eating, uh, 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 Mia is eating her sp- uh, j- spoonful of peanut butter, and Xander is eating her- his spoonful of peanut butter, and uh, Livy is eating a cookie as she leans up against the counter, and she says, I-, I don't want peanut butter, but I do like snacks. And so, now this is just the power of a model. That we step where someone else has already stepped. And if, you've, uh, if you grew up in snow like I did, uh, by the way, it, it's way better if snow is in your rearview mirror. Uh, that's like, yeah, I did that. And now I like living here instead of, you know, in, <laughs> where I can, I'm stuck in my house uh, for six months out of the year. Basically, if you lived in quarantine, uh, you know, those of you, that's basically New England six months out of the year. So anyway, but uh, there's this thing when it snows that there are steps and the more people that step, there's this path that gets created. For the first couple people, it's the hardest because they've got to kind of really take the big steps. But then the more people that step, it just makes it easy. They've created a way. And that's, that's, what ha- that's the power of a model is that it just, it creates this way, it reveals the way that we're supposed to go. And the writer of Hebrews now is giving us this picture of what a deeper walk with God looks like through the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is really uh, this important centerpiece in Jewish history. Now, I want you to think about it. Creation itself is given two chapters in the Bible. The tabernacle is given 50 chapters uh, in, in the Bible as far as its creation and construction. Because the tabernacle was the place of worship, but it was also the place of reconciliation where you made things between you and God, where you made things right between you and your neighbor. The tabernacle was the very, at the very center of the camp because it was a picture uh, when that God would be at the center of their lives. And even as they traveled from Egypt to the promised land, the tabernacle was always in 
the center, and, and, and it becomes with us this picture of walking with God. So let me show you this pic if I can. So this is what the tabernacle looked like. This is the children of Israel encamped. Um, by the way, just for those of you that went to public school, this is a drawing, not an actual photo. Uh, so just as an FYI. All right. So the tabernacle, uh, obviously this is the, the entrance to the tabernacle, and this is the courtyard. Now the tabernacle was about 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. And so anyone who was Jewish was allowed into this courtyard of uh, the tabernacle. There'd be this place of offering. Um, this is where the offerings were made. And then this was a uh, bronze laver where there was uh, washings and all of that that took place, which the writer of Hebrews will mention later. The tabernacle itself, the building was much smaller. It was 15 feet uh, wide by 45 feet long. And it was split into two rooms. In fact, if I see the next picture, uh, it was split into two rooms. And you see it here. So this is all, so this is about 30, uh, 15 feet wide by 30 feet long. And this was called the holy place. Now the holy place had three pieces of furniture uh, in it. And uh, if we can go to the next photo, um, that is, you'd see on the left, you, this is the golden lampstand or the menorah. This is the only light source in the holy place. There was the, uh, the table, which it was a table of showbread. It had 12 loaves of bread, each representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, in front of the curtain, now the curtain is pulled back. So you can see the uh, Holy of Holies. But in front of the curtain is uh, what's called the altar of incense. And this is to burn continually. Uh, and as we read in the book of Revelation, that this incense is the prayer of God's people. Now, if we go inside the Holy of Holies, which is a 15 by 15 cube, I think we have another. If we can go back to the other picture, if you can go back one. And, and there we go. Thank you. Wow, you guys are really on it today. Good job. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Awesome. little golf clap for you back there. If we get through this whole thing, there's a big clap in it for you at the end. All right. So there's one piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies, and that is what we saw here, which is the Ark of the Covenant. So if we go back to the other picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, let me, uh, there we go. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is the box. The top is what's called the mercy seat. And so that's just, um, sometimes people call the Ark of the Covenant the whole thing. It's actually two, uh, two distinct pieces of, uh, it's just the, the, the top to it. And what we read about is that the Ark had uh, three different pieces of uh, furniture, uh, three different things inside, right? As we read it, it had... A, the golden pot that had manna, which was what fell from heaven every morning before they got into the land of promise. It had Aaron's rod that had budded, which showed that God had chosen him to be the priest. That's in Numbers chapter 17. And then the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments. And so the, the cover is called the mercy seat, as I mentioned. And by the way, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark did a great, uh, this is Raider, they did an excellent job uh, recreating this. So um, anyway, if you've never seen that movie, you have homework. Um, 
So, all right, now I've set it up. So let's, in verses 6 through 10, he describes it a little bit. And here's what he says. He says, now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, that is the holy place, the 15 by 30, preparing, uh, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience uh, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation or uh, the rectifying of all things. So if you pause there and give me your attention, there's two things that are mentioned here in these verses before we move on. And that is the daily role of the priests in the holy place. That is, they went to the first part where the menorah table of showbread was, and they, they would work there every day, adding oil, changing the loaves, keeping that incense uh, burning, but then the other place, in the Holy of Holies, they would only enter one time a year. And uh, the, the, whole, the high priest would go in one time a year to atone for the sins of the people. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat seven times. By the way, you know how many times, how many places Jesus bled from his body when he died? Seven places. Why? Because he was making atonement. Anyway, more on that some other time. Uh, but so... Now, the question is, what does this ancient worship practice, how does that have any bearing on your life? And you say, how does that invite you to a deeper walk with God? It's because it's giving us a model in this picture of an invitation to a deeper walk. When, you, um, when you're less mature in your faith, minor things are a big deal. And the more that you mature the more you're able to focus on things that matter. Now, let me explain what, what, that, what that means. Uh, where the tabernacle is showing us these three levels of spiritual maturity that we enter into. Every Jewish person is invited into the courtyard. That is the place of worship and singing and casting your cares upon God because he cares for you. In Psalm 100, the psalmist writes, enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. But that's the place of knowing who God is and thanking him for what he's done. But once again, there's, there's a deeper place to move to. That is the holy place. The place where there's illumination, the place where there is uh, sustenance. It's the place where you start knowing Jesus in a deeper way. These, these pictures, why, why do we have this picture of this light source? Because Jesus says, I am the light of the world. That's what he's talking about. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. He's, he's using that imagery. And so the thing that we have to understand, we understand who Jesus is and we begin to feed ourselves and feed others. But then there's this other place, the holiest of all, the holy of holies, the place of calling and provision. 
Now, I want you to think about, as I mentioned, these three items that were inside the ark, the two tablets of stone, where we don't need to be confused about what direction God wants to give us, that we can seek and make wise decisions and honor God in our lives. There's Aaron's rod that budded. It's a story about God choosing who's going to serve him as a priest in the nation. You see, that rod was Aaron's reminder that he was called. And lastly, the jar of manna, when the manna wasn't going to last. It wouldn't last two days. You would gather your manna for that day, and then it would be over. And then the next day, on the Sabbath, you could get, get two days' worth of manna. Uh, or the day before the Sabbath, you'd get two days so you didn't have to work on the Sabbath. This manna was supernaturally preserved over the course of years and decades and centuries, representing God's daily provision. And so my question is then, where do you want to live? I mean, you can live in the courtyard, and it's pretty cool to live in the courtyard, um, but there's something deeper and better. The holy place is the place of serving and understanding Jesus in a deeper way. But there's something even more, the holiest of all, the place where I really understand my calling and recognize God's provision in my life as I follow his lead. And the cool thing is, is that we don't have to wait a year or a day or a month to enter in. We can enter in daily. You see, earlier in Hebrews, when the writer says, therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. That's what he's talking about. That we might obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. It's available to us anytime, anywhere, in any situation. We've just got to decide where we want to live. So he goes on in verse 11, and here's what he says. He says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, uh, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal salvation or eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifying for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator, that is the reconciler, the go-between of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, Pause there and give me your attention. Second thing I want to tell you, and that is that we have this example for a guilt-free life. We have an example, listen, that, that we can live life guilt-free. Now, it's complicated. Uh, it's a complicated passage. Uh, and, and you know, the thing is, when, when we talk earlier about, um, you know, you kind of move through stages of maturity, and that the things that used to freak you out don't really freak you out. But then there's, um, and the things that maybe we'd feel guilty about, you know, you mature and, and, and you, you, you grow from it. It's, it's kind of like parenting, where having your third child is different than having your first child. Do you remember having your first child? 
uh, where you were freaking out about everything. And if you just had your first child, you're in the process of freaking out about everything. Everything has to be sterilized. Nothing can touch the floor. Everyone who touches your baby has to go through a 12-point background check. And then you start loosening things up as you had more kids. And I noticed this. I noticed this in my own life as a parent dealing with the same situation with each of my kids. And the situation that I learned was cereal falling on the floor. When Mia was little and she would spill a bowl of cereal on the floor, I would jump out of my seat. Don't worry, mama. I got this. I'll clean it up and make you a new bowl. And then my son Xander was born. And Xander, he would spill a bowl of cereal. I'm like, all right, buddy, come on. Let's clean this up together. And let's get you a new bowl of cereal together. And then your third one comes along. And Livy spills cereal on the floor. And I'm like, Livy, your cereal's on the floor. Eat it before it dries. Uh, and it, it just, it, you know, it, it, it changes. And... Um, I would have felt so guilty early on as a parent, and now I'm just like, you know what? That's how you build an immune system. I'm helping you by doing that, all right? So now, uh, the passage that we read, let me explain, that there, it, it's, it is a complicated passage because, as I've told you before, the writer of Hebrews is expecting you to have a very thorough understanding of the Old Testament and of the tabernacle, which I know a lot of us don't, so we're kind of dishing it out as we go so we can keep up. Uh, but the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus didn't go into the earthly tabernacle to offer himself as an offering like the priests would do every year. Instead, he went into the heavenly tabernacle. And that he, the, remember last time we said that, that the earthly tabernacle was simply a copy of what heaven looks like. And so that Jesus went into the heavenly tabernacle and presented himself as the offering. Now, this is a powerful point that I want to explore for a minute because all of these sacrifices in the Old Testament were about the shedding of blood to cover sin. And this is where uh, modern people or postmodern people have a problem and they'll talk about Christianity um, and Judaism in particular uh, and say, come on, that's like so archaic and backwards. I mean, you know, that's not, that's not what real faith is or whatever. But I, I want to talk about this for a minute and what blood represents. In the ancient world, blood represented three things that were negative. It, it represented the flowing of blood, talked about sickness. It, all, it represented guilt, that is like blood on your hands. Um, and then it represented unrighteousness. So the picture was, if you were all white, it was righteous. Uh, but if there were blood spots on the garment, then it, it represented unrighteousness. That's the negative. But the, uh, the thing that blood also represented was life. Because no one is born without the shedding of blood in childbirth. That is the cost of admission for birth. It's also the picture of sacrifice, right? One of the reasons why we honor uh, veterans and fallen soldiers in America and, and the freedoms that we have is because we, we talk about people have shed blood for the preservation of the freedoms that we enjoy. In the Old Testament, when a person had to pick an animal out of their flock or herd as a sacrifice, this was an emotional thing. 
uh, because these animals were, this is an agrarian society. They were known by their owners, right? These animals were known by their owners. It wasn't like, you know, when you order a turkey from Publix this week for Thanksgiving, the first time you see the turkey will be when you put it in your cart. But I want you to imagine that you have lived with this animal. These animals have come through your house. Your children have names for all of these animals that have come through. But you know what? You've also recognized that there has been sin has been committed throughout the course of the year. And we've got to make things right between us and God. And once again, it was a, there was this moment where you would have a, a, a conversation with your children. Like, why do we have to do this? Because sin costs something. And they, they recognized that sin, the, the equated sin, not just with, wow, I just kind of made a mistake. Wow, that was an error in judgment. No, that sin equaled death. And that was this, this understanding that they had. And it was a picture for us of what would happen when the Messiah came and offered himself and sacrificed himself on their behalf. And we're always moved by sacrifice. Any story of someone sacrificing moves us because we recognize that sacrifice costs something because it connects us to the greatest sacrifice that there is. Well, my, one day my wife, and I've told this story before years ago, but one time my wife was picking up a few things at Publix and she was in the express lane and uh, the woman in front of her is checking out her groceries. The cashier tells the woman, um, how much uh, she owes, and the woman realizes that she has forgotten her wallet. And uh, she starts crying, I can't believe this, this is the kind of day I'm having, and she just starts talking about like everything that's gone wrong. And um, my wife uh, says to her, she says, hey, um, if it's okay, um, I'd be happy to pay for your groceries. And uh, And the woman's like, really, you would do that for me? And she says, you know, I, I believe God put me in this line right now to buy your groceries so you could know how much he loves you. Well, that was the thing that that woman needed because she starts hysterically crying. And uh, then my wife starts crying. And as the story goes, then the cashier starts crying. And I can only imagine what happens at the end of that moment where the cashier is like, you saved $4. Thank you for shopping at Publix. You know, and, and, there, why, and why is it so powerful? Because just deep within us, right, we know that so, someone has to pay the price that we can never pay. And that's why people who are guilt-ridden, they do one of two things. Guilt-ridden people either, one, numb themselves from the pain of the guilt that they experience, or two, they decide to live up to the sacrifice that was made for them. You see, uh, in the next set of verses, in verse 22, it says this. It says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And by the way, you see this throughout our entire culture. We don't recognize it at times because we're not thinking about it. How many, anybody watch Stranger Things? Okay, a lot of you. Very good. Uh, you know what makes Stranger Things so powerful? Is that, and we don't, we don't think about it, every time Eleven 
is going to save one of her friends or she's going to fight the Demogorgon or the Mind Flayer or any type of evil. When she saves her friends, she starts bleeding. And it's just this picture of there's no redemption without the shedding of blood. It's what happens if, you, if you've watched Black Panther. And Black Panther, you know, T'Challa gets thrown over the waterfall. He's dead. They bring him to this place where they bury him. I mean, literally, I mean, can, can, the, can the imagery get any more powerful? He dies, he's buried, and he's resurrected. And it's only after he's resurrected that he's able to defeat his enemy. It's the same thing that happens if you've read the Harry Potter books, the same thing that takes place, right? Um, and by the way, spoiler alert. Uh, but you had 20 years, so it's time. Uh, right? Harry has to die, and it's only after he dies and is brought back by the resurrection stone that he's able to defeat Voldemort. And what these aren't coincidences. These are the cries of our heart because we all intuitively understand that sacrifice has a price. And when you realize, listen, you know when you realize that Jesus died for your life, you will start valuing your life? And when you realize that uh, Jesus died for your life, that you'll start living like your decisions matter and your future matters because it is a gift for the one who sacrificed for you? I have a friend named Ronnie, and uh, Ronnie is a, a tour guide. He lives in Israel, and uh, he's a tour guide uh, in, uh, in Israel. And uh, when we went to Israel uh, the first time, he was, he, we, we went to this place in Jerusalem called Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the Holocaust Museum. And outside of the Holocaust Museum, uh, Ronnie told us the story of his father that his father was in a Nazi concentration camp and thankfully lived to tell the story. He was rescued later, uh, he was rescued and later worked for the establishment of the nation of Israel. And one day, he was, Ronnie was talking with his father and his father says to him, he says, my son, I'm going to ask something of you. I'm going to ask that you live enough for two lives, one for you and one for the life that I never got to live. This is what sacrifice asks of us. That's why Jesus' sacrifice means so much is because it freed us from a past that we would be forever bound to. And it gives us a life that we never thought we could live because his sacrifice shows us that our life matters. And that's when he goes to verse 23, when he closes it up, he says this, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself as it is appointed for men once to die. But after this, the judgment. 
So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him who will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, and here's where we're going to draw to a close. Last thing I'm going to tell you is that we have an example for living with purpose. And I want you to notice something, that the goal of having this life that is guilt-free is not so that we can live however we want. It's so that we can be freed from guilt to live a life that matters. That's why the writer says there in verse 27 that it's appointed unto man once to die and after that to face God for judgment. There's two things that should motivate us. One, that we're going to stand before God and give an account for our lives. That is the things that we did. But the other thing is that your life is going to end at some point. And if that's true, don't you want to do something with your life that matters? And listen, I want to get to the end of my life and leave death nothing. I want to leave death just bones. That's it. That's That's all I had left. And I don't want to get to the end and realize that I wasted the one life that God had given me. I didn't steward my time well, my talent well, my resources well. Instead, listen, this entire message has been about the quality of life that you want to live. That we have the opportunity to choose the the, the quality of life, the kind of life that we live. We can live a life in the courtyard where I know God, but I don't want to go too deep. Or I can go way deeper than that and have a place of deep understanding of my calling and purpose. That we have the opportunity to be released from the guilt that we carry. And guilt usually paralyzes us and prevents us from moving forward. And it keeps us tied to the past. It chains us to our past mistakes and failure. Or do we want a life of purpose? So we get to the end of our lives and you realize that, listen, I left nothing wasted. No opportunity was overlooked. Your, you see, when, when you take your last breath on earth and you step into eternity, there is something that will live on, and that, in, in, on this earth, and that is your legacy. And you have three options, right? You're either going to live for the honor of others, the honor of yourself, or you're going to live for the honor of God. And these are the three, every person has that option. You either live for the honors of others where you're obsessed with compliments from other people. You're obsessed with social media likes from other people. You're obsessed with not getting anybody else upset. And I want to tell you something that you will live your, a, a life of exhaustion because it's never going to be enough. You can live for yourself where it's all about your happiness, your pleasure. If it feels good, do it. You create your own meaning. And you know what you're going to be? Depressed. Because we've watched culturally people who have all of these things. And they'll either waste their lives or take their lives and and will say, I don't understand. They have everything that we thought a person could have earth you know humanly speaking to be happy and yet they weren't because sometimes the reality of having everything doesn't bring joy 
And if having everything doesn't bring you joy, then the thing that you were aiming for, that, then that life has no meaning. But when you place God at the center of your life and decide that you're gonna, your life is not going to be about you, it's not going to be about other people. There's this counterintuitive thing that happens that you have a life of purpose and meaning and worth knowing that you were loved by him no matter what and that you have value by him no matter what apart from anything that you do simply because you were created by him and because he loves you. You see, life becomes very different and here's how life becomes very different. When purpose is external, you are always trying to walk towards purpose. And so if I can make enough people happy, then I'm, I can find purpose. And if I can get enough things to make me happy, then I have purpose. No, but when God, you recognize the value and worth you have by God, then you move from purpose, not towards it. You've already got it. And that changes everything. And here's what I believe is that for some of us, one of the reasons why this, this whole season in 2020 has been so difficult is because it is breaking down anything, any kind of false construct that we've created. All the stuff that I kind of put my hope in, didn't really say I'd put my hope in, but I kind of put my hope in. I kind of put my identity there. I kind of put my trust there. I kind of put my worth there. And all of that kind of gets broken down. And now we, we have an opportunity to say, am I really going to find my worth and value in who God is and what God believes about me and live my life then for an audience of one? And if that's the case, listen, maybe today as we close, if you haven't made that decision, This is your moment to do so. So let's pray together. And Lord, I want to thank you for this opportunity that we have to recognize that these other ways that we can live our lives are just not going to bring the meaning and purpose that we look for. The only way that we're going to have meaning and purpose in life is by knowing you and by centering our lives on you. So listen, with every head bowed and every eye closed as we're praying together, if you're in a place where you say, Pastor, I need to invite Jesus to come into my life because I've had all kinds of other things that have mattered more, all kinds of things that have taken precedence, all kinds of things where I found my worth and value. Listen, this is the moment to find forgiveness, peace, and a new trajectory in life. And listen, as we close, I'm not going to make a big fanfare out of this. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to pray for you as we close. So if you just lift your hand and say, Pastor, that's me, I'm going to pray for you as we close. If you say, I need Jesus to come into my life. See, hands there, hands there. God bless you. Hands there, hands all over this room. God bless you guys. Lord, I want to thank you for every person that's lifted a hand. And I pray that as they come to you now, Lord, that you would invite, we invite your spirit to come into them, to forgive them, to seal them. And God, that you would walk with them.
Listen, those of you that lifted a hand, I'm going to invite you to just repeat this prayer out loud. It's not a magic formula, but it's, it's, it's your heart expressing to God. We're all going to say it out loud together. Just say, dear God, I come to you today, and I'm sorry for all I've done. I thank you for Jesus who died for me and rose again that I might have life. I want to walk with you starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.